Hello and welcome to Unramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Fayfix. And I'm Charlotte. And this week we're going to be talking about A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. Before we get into that, I do want to just mention that we do now have a YouTube channel. We're currently posting up all of our old episodes there, so you'll be able to listen to those there. And we'll be posting new ones once we've caught up to where we are here. We'll still be posting them on the platform as well. Um, so you'll be able to get them on any podcast app or on YouTube, just whatever you prefer, or both. Okay, so we'll obviously have spoilers for the entirety of A Canticle for Leibowitz. If we have anything else to spoil, we'll drop that in right here along with our content warnings. Hello! We have got no spoiler warnings this week. But we do have content warnings for infanticide, euthanasia, murder, and nuclear war. So, you know, real lighthearted episode. Okay, and back to the past. Welcome back. So I read Canticle for Leibowitz in great detail a few years ago for my master's thesis. Um, Charlene has just reread the book over the past week or so. So um, she's going to do the plot summary today as I think she'll have a little bit more of the finer details. And then we'll go on from there. A Canticle for Leibowitz is a really interesting book that came out in the late 1950s. I believe that it came out in 1959. And it is told in three different parts, but all of the three sections of the story come chronologically after a nuclear war has destroyed all of human civilization as we know it, the civilization that we're in and that the writer was living in. And kind of documenting the rise and fall of human civilization after that nuclear war, going from a new dark age in the centuries immediately after all the way through a unifying conquest and all the way up to, in the third component, a technological era, much like the one that precipitated the nuclear war. And in fact, in that third segment, another nuclear war occurs. The entire novel in all three sections is geographically centered on an abbey of the Order of St. Leibowitz, which is a monastic order of the Catholic Church founded shortly after the nuclear war by a former weapons technician who wanted to preserve human knowledge for the future generations of a more enlightened age that might be interested in it. Because again, right after the nuclear war, there was a dark age as part of a backlash against the science and the governments that had caused the nuclear war. And I think that's a pretty good summary. There's about 600 years in between the three components but it does seem like it starts less than that amount of time after the actual nuclear war, maybe a few generations. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, I think that it's a particularly fascinating book because while it's a full novel that spans 1,200 years or so, I don't think a lot of the complexity is in the plot itself, but rather in how that story is told and what it's trying to say in that process. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. The style of the book is really interesting. I don't think I've ever read anything written quite like this book. There is a lot of Catholic theming and influence throughout, both in the heavy use of Latin throughout, and of course it being centered on an abbey and the protagonist-ish characters most often being, in fact, always being monks, obviously adds to that. There are a whole lot of biblical references everywhere that add a whole lot to the story and the deeper meanings of what's being said. Like if you're not up on your Bible, you're going to miss a lot of details, particularly some of the like jokes, um, which is interesting. 
And that also ties into a lot of the themes that keep recurring. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly interesting for me reading it. Like, I I don't have a background in Catholicism, so a lot of what I know about the, those references come up later. I know that you have a little bit more of a tangential relationship to it, so it'd be interesting to see what you say about some of those things. Yeah, well, and one of the things, too, is, like, if you Google some of the Latin phrases, which I definitely did toward the end, you can find resources that really do break down all of the biblical references because this is a book that's very commonly assigned for like college courses on science fiction and things like that because it is a seminal work of sci-fi. It's also one of those books that's often annoyingly referred to as having like transcended genre or some shit to become literary despite being sci-fi. I know how you feel about that. What Charlene is doing here is trying to press my buttons. Yes. <laughs> she is very aware that I have very strong feelings about phrases like transcending the genre and so much of the criticism about this book just hinges on that idea of, oh, this is interesting. It's a genre book that's clever or this is almost literary. That's yeah. like What we're trying to say is off. that, yeah, what we're trying to say is that the idea of what is and isn't literature is a lot of elitist nonsense. If you want to hear more of my rant about this, please go and listen to episode five on Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula Le Guin, because I'm pretty sure I give a 10 minute rant in that as well. Yeah. For a lot of the same reasons. Indeed. But again, because it is assigned a lot for academic reading, there are a lot of academic resources that will helpfully translate things and let you know what certain things are alluding to or referring to, which gives you a better idea of um, the context that he's writing in. because. Walter Miller was Catholic and a pretty devout Catholic, if I remember correctly, although he fell out with the church later in life after yeah. this book came out. I don't want to get too into the weeds earlier on. I do want to say, I think it's interesting as a choice to include a lot of Latin or something like that in a book when you know that the majority of the populace aren't going to have that same grounding in the language. It could be perceived as gatekeepery. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, it's much more that I think Walter Miller was writing this book for himself. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's as popular as it is, is a fun side effect. Like, I think he was processing various things himself through his writing. I don't, I don't know about that, because while, yeah, I agree with you that he was definitely working through some stuff related to his experience in World War II in writing this book. I think that part of why it resonates so much is because it taps into a lot of the fears and concerns that a lot of people have been struggling with since World War II and onward. Uh, fears about the nature of man and the fate of humanity and concerns about our possible hubris. Right. I, I don't think it's just that it like is incidentally popular because, you well, know what I mean? No, I, I, I think that that is why it's resonated and I'm reading in, into authorial intent that I shouldn't be doing, but I get the impression that he was asking questions that a lot of other people were asking. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he was asking them for other people to answer for him. I think he was asking because he wanted to ask, and that was his process in writing, which I think is why he didn't hold back on, I'll talk more about how this book came to be later on, but like, the choice to go in and add Latin in the way that he did, I feel mm -hmm. was much more to create what he wanted than with an audience in mind as such. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's definitely not written to be accessible in that right. regard. It is 
again, you're going to lose a lot of content and nuance if you are not coming from a background or a uh, knowledge base of biblical like history and yeah. stuff. So you're, you're either going to have to do a lot of homework or you have to already be coming from a similar background, which is obviously not something you do if you're looking for commercial success right. is what I guess what you're getting at. And um, I mean, he only published one novel in his lifetime, which I think speaks to that. Yeah. Someone else finished the sequel for him at his request at yeah. his request. Yeah. But it, he, that was released like 40 years later. So he was definitely not driven by the prospect of selling books. Yeah. There's one other author that I know of that maybe we, I, I can twist your arm into doing a book or two by her is um, Dorothy L. Sayers, who's one of the classic crime writers, like a contemporary of Agatha Christie, who would include like passages of French and Latin in her books with no explanation or translation. And sometimes they were fairly key. And if you didn't know what those were, then you were just SOL. I think I remember you mentioning that. Like, doesn't your mom really like her stuff? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I knew that that had come up. One thing I do want to say about the Latin, though, is part of why he might have decided to keep a lot of Latin in there is because this book came out before Vatican II when the church decided to stop using Latin in mass or at least stop mandating it. So after that, it was much less common as part of mass and other ceremonial things and so i think that's a a part of him projecting the situation he was in into the future without expecting that to change yeah i mean it's still an accessibility issue when you're writing that like i mean non-catholics and large numbers of catholics are still not going to know what that stuff necessarily is but very true he could have made a more business savvy decision to make <laughs> it a little bit more accessible and not have the latin or consistently translate it which he does translate a lot of it, so you can get through the book and get most of it, if, even if you don't know Latin, but you are going to miss some of the smaller details and some of the jokes and things like that, and some nuances with like obscure Bible references, etc. It's my dream for all art to be more business savvy. <laughs> okay, so should we get into the story stuff? Yeah. So I think it would be entirely pointless to take a look at this story without considering the context within it, which it was written. Okay. So you spoke a little bit on the broad strokes of the story that we've got this civilization that is rebuilding after a nuclear war. There's a lot of violence in the book. Um, I think all of our protagonists die within the course of the stories. Francis certainly does in the first one, and the abbot dies in the third one. The protagonist in both the second and third sections are abbots, and they both die. The abbot from the second section dies of natural causes though and it's building up to this point where we're moving back towards nuclear war effectively when it comes to the end of the last section you're at a point where nuclear war is happening once again so i mean he's writing this in the run-up to 1959 i know a couple of the parts were published as short stories before that so he's writing really in the height of the cold war mccarthyism in and all of that stuff Right. Yeah. And in the wake of his actions in World War II. So he's seen violence and he's seen the horrors of war. They're out of it and he's sitting in a scenario where the governments around him are jostling their nuclear weapons in threatening ways. It's not surprising that a book that comes out of that period and that experience is 
perhaps a little pessimistic. Oh, definitely. There are some really compelling passages in particular that make it very clear the perspective he has on some of the political things going on at the time. Like the beginning of chapter two opens with this like Lord's Prayer type of passage that has clearly been modified after World War Three, I guess. I'm going to skip over the every other line, O Lord, deliver us, just for expediency. Domine, libera nos from the lightning and the tempest, from the scourge of the earthquake, from plague, famine, and war, from the, from the place of ground zero, from the reign of the cobalt, from the reign of the strontium, from the fall of the cesium, from the curse of the fallout, from the beginning of monsters, from the curse of the misborn, a morte perpetua, peccatoris, that thou wouldst spare us, we beseech thee, hear us, that thou wouldst pardon us, that thou wouldst bring us truly to penance. And then in another part of the same first section, they're recounting sort of in a biblicized version what had happened to precipitate the nuclear war that destroyed civilization. Mm -hmm. It was said that God, in order to test mankind, which had become swelled with pride as in the time of Noah, had commanded the wise men of that age, among them the blessed Leibowitz, to devise great engines of war such as had never before been upon the earth, weapons of such might that they contained the very fires of hell, and that God had suffered these magi to place the weapons in the hands of princes, and to say to each prince, Only because the enemies have such a thing have we devised this for thee, in order that they may know that thou hast it also, and fear to strike. See to it, my lord, that thou fearest them as much as they shall now fear thee, that none may unleash this dread thing which we have wrought. But the princes, putting the words of their wise men to naught, thought each to himself, If I but strike quickly enough and in secret, I shall destroy those others in their sleep, and there will be none to fight back, the earth shall be mine. Such was the folly of princes, and there followed the flame deluge. And there's more about like how you know, civilization then ends. So I feel that between those two sections, like Walter Miller is pretty clearly saying mutually assured destruction was a terrible idea, that it relies on people who are in power to be wise and not seek more power, and is showing that that results in World War III or in a nuclear holocaust where the world is destroyed and all the future generations that survive are stuck with horrible consequences of the folly of the people who used to be in charge. Yeah, I mean, it's assuming that your world leaders don't have the same mindset as, like, Wild West gunmen in a shootout. There's far too much risk of them going, yeah, but I can draw faster. Right. Or bluff more effectively or something, you know? Yeah. I think it's fascinating that that's done, that that's how the history is presented. Mm -hmm. For reasons that we'll get into more in just a moment, the like plot is centered around religion in certain ways. So I guess that makes a certain amount of sense, but there's no indication that there is like a more official history than that, which I think ties into the sort of history that we get of the post-deluge period and the rise of the simpletons. Right, and it's referred to at some point as the simplification. Yeah. Um, where all history that's recorded is intentionally destroyed. Obviously not all, because some of this has been saved by these monks, but where berserk masses hunt down and martyr any politician or scientist or person of learning or person of authority that they can find. 
because they blame those casts of people for the nuclear holocaust that they're now having to deal with all of the consequences of. Yeah. And they take the term simpleton for themselves as like a badge of honor. Right. It was sort of like a reclamatory thing where like the scientists and the politicians were kind of writing off these bloodthirsty masses as, oh, you're just bloodthirsty simpletons or something like that. I forget the adjective, but, and they're like, yeah, yeah, I am. I'm a regular guy. I don't have your degrees and your status and I'm not the one who put us in this mess. And there's a huge backlash against science and learning and those kinds of institutions. I kind of wonder where Walter Miller sees himself on that spectrum, whether his experiences in World War II were feeling like he was being subjected to the whims of the, quote, learned people or the figures of authority, which not always the same thing. Right. I mean, there's a reason there's a distinction between the princes and the magi. The magi are supposed to advise the princes, but the princes don't always listen to the magi, but the magi sometimes enable the worst abuses of the princes. Yeah. And I, I feel like that all works out very clearly and is, I, I think that's a pretty uh, reasonable portrayal, <laughs> honestly. I think the story from Miller's life that is one of the most informative for this is that he was part of a bomber crew in World War II that destroyed a monastery in Italy that was actually, I think, the oldest monastery in the Western world at the time. And as a man of faith, it seems that that had a pretty big effect on him and is a large part of why this story is around a monastery. But that's something that seems to have haunted him and something that he didn't get that decision to do. I don't think that he woke up that morning and went, I'm going to go and bomb that monastery. It was a following the orders of the figures of authority situation. I agree that that probably had something to do with the inspiration for this book and particularly centering it on a monastery that manages to survive through 1200 years post-nuclear holocaust. And also centering on that order being dedicated to the preserving of knowledge when he himself was part of keeping it from maintaining traditions. Yeah. The antithesis of the simpletons is obviously the this order of Leibowitz that we see from the start. I think you mentioned that Leibowitz had been a weapons engineer before and then sort of in the aftermath took to trying to hide knowledge from the simpletons to protect it for future generations, which sets up this question of sort of is knowledge bad? when the protection of that knowledge leads to where we get to at the end of the third story, where it does lead back to nuclear war. It leads us to this sort of question of, is man doomed regardless, or is knowledge bad that's going to take man to that place no matter what? And with all the religious imagery as well, it sort of ties fairly well into this original sin idea with the tree of knowledge. Well, particularly as it's the tree of knowledge of good of good and evil in mm. particular. It's like if you know good and evil, another part of the circling of this story is this idea that because man knows good and evil, he is always trying to recreate Eden and improve the world and the life he lives. But because of his awareness of what the possibilities are, there's always an awareness of what isn't perfect yet and that constant striving for perfection and that 
inability to be satisfied ultimately drives so far forward to evil eventually because it's never good enough. And so eventually man tears it down Mm. because particularly the idea of like, you know, tearing uh, building Edens and then tearing them down because they're not quite Eden. Some fundamental knowledge that it's not perfect. And so I hate it. I personally feel attacked. (laughs) What? Just the like, everything has to be perfect. But it's true. It's this inability to be satisfied that is leading man to his own destruction in in these cycles that Walter Miller is depicting. Yeah, and I think the aspect of being doomed to end up in the same place and being doomed to repeat things is framed very well within the storytelling, partially just through the three narratives, but also through the repetition that you get within each of those. Um, You sort of get this consistent cycle of a rise and fall of individuals within that. You want to talk a bit more about that? Well, I wouldn't have centered the idea of the rise and fall on individuals in this story so much as on the civilization, because what we're seeing in this book is a recreation of the history that we know about, which is, you know, from the Middle Ages, Dark Ages, which Walter Miller was really well versed in as far as like medieval history through the unification of countries and there's sort of like an alexander the great situation that we see play out in the second part all the way through to the rise of modern technologically advanced nations and nuclear war after a prolonged period of intergovernmental tensions and there being like a world court and all that kind of stuff so it's very clearly paralleling the trajectory we're aware of from feudalism all the way through the un yeah I entirely agree with that. I think that there is sort of a meta level going on where you get that across the whole narrative. It's about a cyclical recurrence of what has come before with a basis of our world. Mm -hmm. And we can imagine that at the end of Canticle for Leibowitz, because humanity isn't destroyed, only Earth, that maybe a similar cycle might then play out on outer worlds, in space, some such or another. However, I think that if you look down at each of the individual stories, you see similar themes and patterns and stories play out on a much narrower level about an individual and potentially an individual who isn't as important to the grand scheme of things. So if you take the first story, I cannot remember the names of these stories, so I'm just going to keep referring to them Uh, by number. Homo, yeah, um, yeah. Fiat homo, fiat lux, and fiat voluntas tua. It's a uh, let there be man, let there be light. Thy will be done. Yep, I did know those. I just can't remember that Latin. I did look up. You have Brother Francis who's out doing his hermitage, and through the events of that, you see him have this rise where he gets to a point where he's hand delivering stuff to a pope. Doesn't get better for him after that on a quest to retrieve what was taken from him, he ends up being killed in a fairly meaningless way by a couple of Mistborn. Right. Mistborn being the people who are born horribly disfigured and mutated from the results of nuclear fallout, who are basically exiled to live in their own kind of area. Right. But I think it's that same quest for knowledge 
meets meaningless violence arc that you see. And I think you see that in each story. I think it's three stories that tell a bigger story that is the same as each of their individual parts. I would agree with that. There are other cycles and other like recurring elements in the different stories too. Certainly. Um, like the buzzards, a motif that's kind of repeated in the different sections is this litany about the buzzards feeding on the corpses that you see as part of these stories and laying their eggs in their season and raising their young and all of this stuff. And it's very much like the circle of life. There's sort of this implication that humans are very caught up in what they're doing, but there are like other cycles of life that are going on anyway. And just sort of in this particular instance, taking advantage of the death that humans are wreaking. Yeah, I think that that is an important sort of underlying theme that you do get that I think the buzzards helps to emphasize is you get that story of the shark at the very end. That is so weird and so sad. because. The story is saying that, like, all life on Earth seems to get blown away, except, you know, this shark is able to swim down into the deeper waters and has a bad year because there's not much to eat. But there's an implication that it carries on. Right. It's part of this whole idea, and we've talked about it, I think, before, where, like, people talk about the world ending, but what they actually mean is the civilization and the world that they know. The world itself is fine. There are still buzzards. There are still sharks. There are still insects. Some cycles are going to continue to repeat regardless of what humans are doing to each other on the planet or off the planet, as the case may be at the end of the story. Yeah. This cycle might keep repeating, but there's other things going on that are not affected or, well, not not affected, but that are separate from that. Yeah, and I think it's it's another one of those things of like, man is so focused on his own greatness and fails to understand or acknowledge the other things that exist like outside of himself. I think we're always at risk with things like this, talking a lot about the first part and the last part. You referenced man's greatness in there and earlier you referenced the sort of parallels between the second story and the conquest of Alexander the Great. Yeah, at least that's what it read to me. I know there have been a lot of accomplished conquerors in human history who just went gobbling up territories that had previously not been unified. But it seemed to me to be kind of going for the Alexander the Great idea. There, I think there was even like an aspect of that conqueror building off the progress of his father, which is also the case with Alexander the Great. But anyway, we don't see like a specific human going through that sort of like rise and fall like Francis, like you were talking about. But there is some parallel in the role of the church in the second act where the church over these past six however many centuries has been accruing knowledge and accruing wealth and influence with the rulers in the territories around but during the period of time when Hannigan who's this Alexander the Great type figure is conquering everywhere they want to sort of leverage the church militarily and there are some issues Um, but ultimately at the end of that that conqueror has declared that that the church is false or like the people who had been representatives of the church are not the real church and has his own like church officials that are not actually affiliated with the church that he then like says are the ones who actually have authority so you see a similar sort of thing in terms of the authority of the catholic church 
where it's been growing and then it's threatened at the end. Yeah. And again, I mean, there's that recurrence of the violence in the church and the military's part in that and just sort of how those things shouldn't really be being put together in this situation. Right. Well, that conflict sort of comes to a head because the ruler accuses a high-ranking church official of espionage because he is trying to warn members of the church about that conqueror's plans to wage a war of unification. And so in retaliation for him killing that Monsignor, the church issues an edict against the ruler. And then the ruler is like, oh, you've seen this edict. Yeah, they're not the real church. Only these priests are real priests. And it's like a bunch of people that the church people are like, yeah, I don't know the hell, who the hell those guys are. And so it's this like situation where by trying to protect themselves from the avarice of this ruler, they've become targets and cast as suspicious characters in the political landscape. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well that you're pulling up the Alexander the Great reference with this, because you say you didn't know that much about Alexander the Great? I don't remember a lot of details about him. I remember some vague stuff from history classes. One of the main things that's relevant here is that he, I mean, obviously he amassed great amounts of power and through conquest and da 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 but as far as like his death, it's one of those things where the accounts aren't always clear, but effectively like he got ill or he drank some stuff he shouldn't have drunk and then he died. And it's sort of this meaningless, pointless end to a great rise. Mm hmm. So I think that itself fits in. I mean, I'm presumably that's part of why that's chosen as an illusion in there. Quite possibly. Would you say that the third civilization is in decline or is it rising until it doesn't? You know, I think it is more of the second. I think it's more of an Icarus type situation where they're reaching too far and burn themselves, literally. Yeah, so I think within each of those sections you get the small rise and fall and I think that as you get further through the sections, like it becomes further along on the trajectory within each part. So I think that Brother Francis has much more of a rise and then a sudden fall. And a lot of the story is focused on that early rising period. Whereas by the time you get to the third story, it's much more about that point right before the peak and then right after the peak. Well, and I think that's part of the parallel of Overall, the book is describing the rise to fall of all of human civilization. Right. So, like, within each section, the individual rise and fall for that part focuses most on the part that that part plays within the largest story. Sure. So while these are all on a singular timeline, the characters obviously don't really overlap particularly. There's a few references. And that's what ties a lot of the story together is there's this sort of repetition of some symbolism and also little nods here and there to, oh, this is the same world. Well, I don't know, because it's all set at the Abbey and that's the big thing that ties it all together. It is one point in space. It's also multiple points in time. Right. But as far as the story goes, it's not, you could have stories set in an Abbey 600 years apart where besides the building, everything had changed but there is just enough to keep a reference point to sort of keep the reader looking. I don't know. I think that's part of the beauty of it being centered on an abbey because it is 
a place of so much repetitive ritual and an existence that is intentionally kept as static as possible through the years. Like a monastic lifestyle now is probably much closer to a monastic lifestyle a thousand years ago than almost any other profession that Mm. exists in both times, if you think about it. Yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Yes, obviously the monastery and the monastic practices do tie it together. I think the fact that the plots are echoes of each other, but otherwise fairly independent for each section, does make them a little bit more separate, With it, aside from being within that framework. But you do get nods to the plots of the previous stories, which I think is an important part of that still. I think one of the most notable ones is the skull of Brother Francis. At the end of the first story, we know that he has been killed with an arrow to the head and is then buried outside by a figure we'll get into a bit more. And later we find out that he has been relocated into the abbey in the second story. And then come the last story, part of the collapse means that the abbot in that story sort of comes face to face with this skull with an arrow in it that we have to assume is Francis and ends up having a conversation with that that thus ties the end of the story back to the beginning in a neat way, just for that nod to the earlier plot points through this artifact, which obviously artifacts are a huge part of the story in themselves. Definitely. Yeah, and I think that the fact that it is set in the Abbey, no matter what part of the story it is, makes that possible. It makes that believable. Otherwise, it would not really make any sort of sense. Right. I mean, there's there's Brother Francis's skull, but there's also the carving that one of his contemporaries made mm-hmm. that was supposed to be used as an image of the St. Leibowitz, but was never installed as such because it had too impertinent of a smirk carved into it and we see references to that particular carving and the kind of polarizing effect that it has on people in terms of like different people in the church thinking it's appropriate or not that keeps recurring as well and i i I think that's also kind of going back to this idea of knowledge like is that like how should it be used how seriously should we take it etc and how seriously should we take ourselves i think is also an important part of that carving but yeah that's another one that just keeps coming up Yeah. So the common element with both of the things that we've just said is the figure of maybe Leibowitz. Yes. Yes. Because, oh, I I think I know who you're talking about, and I don't know that we should even say that he might be Leibowitz. You're talking about the man who's called different things in different sections, but it's clearly the same guy in each installment. Yes. So there's a figure who, in the beginning, introduces himself, or at least writes his initials as two Hebrew letters that make like an L and a sh sound that might be like the beginning and end of the word Leibowitz, but also might be Lazarus, which is the same thing that he's referred to in the last installment is as Lazarus. In the middle section, he's referred to as Benjamin. But yeah, so he goes by different names, but he's described the same way each time. And he has a smirk that's weirdly familiar to people who've seen that carving or that the smile on that carving is weirdly familiar to people who've seen him. So it's very clearly implied that this guy is thousands of years old, which people know he tells people he's thousands of years old. They don't really believe him. They find all sorts of ways to rationalize ways he might be 
speaking allegorically and things. But it, the implication very much is that this is someone who has been around since before the nuclear war. So with his name being different in each one and the limited information we get about his character, I'm very tempted to say that this is Leibowitz and allow for a question of maybe who was Leibowitz before. We can get into that. The fact that his introduction is this mystical, like leaving initials on a rock underneath which they find memorabilia quotes mm -hmm. from Leibowitz himself seems like fairly strong evidence. And then the fact that he is tied to the Abbey of Leibowitz seems like further evidence for that. So why don't you think this is Leibowitz? I don't necessarily have a good reason for thinking he's not Leibowitz. It's just that there's a lot in the story to suggest that he is Lazarus or the Wandering Jew or another biblical figure that would far predate the modern age, which I guess if they're still alive, then could, I suppose, have become a weapons engineer. But this particular figure, like, while he does indicate that he's had multiple professions, they all seem to be things like wanderer and beggar and tent repair person and things like that, which was, I think, more of a joke, actually, than anything else. But he doesn't seem to have any interest in any sort of career or a lifestyle that involves being integrated with society in any way. Certainly not in the way that you would have to if you were going to be an engineer. That's a fair point. I do think that like the nods to all the different jobs he's had might be intended to make an opening for that. I think there's also an extent to which it's kind of a Chekhov's gun. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine writing this story and not having that be what you decide is going on there. It's a mild fuck you to the reader if he's not Leibowitz. Does you that make so? sense? I, I feel so. Hmm. Do we disagree on this? Maybe. Oh, this is a problem. We should have talked about this beforehand. No, it's okay. Well, you mentioned The Wandering Jew. Do you want to talk a bit more about that? No, because I don't really know much about The Wandering Jew. I just know that he's a figure from biblical history. That, oh. yeah. Well, I guess I'll talk about The Wandering Jew and it'll just be obvious that I was setting up a question. Okay. <laughs> My Christian education is limited, so this, this is what I've gone from a Wikipedia page, I'm afraid. Effectively, it seems the Wandering Jew is a figure from Christ's journey to the cross, who, like, taunted Jesus and was cursed to walk the earth forever. I don't get the impression that he's, like, a strict part of the Bible. I think he's just sort of a story that's cropped up and there's a few different versions. Um, it's noted that it's the same punishment that's given to Cain. Yeah. Okay which I think is interesting as a combination with Leibowitz, who's a weapons engineer. Sure. And led to nuclear war. See where I'm going? Yeah, in terms of raising his hand against his brother, etc. Do you want to talk about Lazarus? I'm not really sure what there is to say about Lazarus. For those who are unfamiliar, there's a story in the Bible about Jesus raising a man from the dead, and that man was Lazarus. In the third section of the book, like there's sort of a old wife's tale in the neighborhood around the abbey that the old beggar guy who seems very clearly to be the same person as Benjamin, same person as like the wandering hermit guy from the first part is Lazarus, basically with the justification that what Jesus raises doesn't go back down. 
And there's not necessarily a whole lot of support for that, except then later the beggar guy does introduce himself as Lazarus. There is an aspect to which that might just be what he's known as. I think it's interesting that there's sort of mixed mythology provided about the character throughout the book. Mm -hmm. Whereas it, you get a different one each story. He's Leibowitz. He's Lazarus. Who's Benjamin? I don't think there's so much mythology about Benjamin. It's just that he tells everyone that he's thousands of years old and like, they that's nice, think Benjamin. he's kind of crazy, but also some people kind of believe him and he lives by himself on a like hilltop near the abbey. So I wonder what happens to him after the nuclear war. Um, I mean, if he survived one before, well, I mean, he might be Leibowitz. That's definitely what's implied in the first installment. Francis himself doesn't think it's him at first. It doesn't really occur to him until everyone else is putting pieces together and saying, oh, you know, that must have been Leibowitz. And sure, it might be, but I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting one because this sort of combination of, like, there's sort of evidence provided that they might be the same person based on the recognitions of the carving and stuff. But there's also the sort of commentary on how people sort of perceive what they want to see. Mm -hmm. One of the stronger in-world arguments for it being Leibowitz is that the woodcarver who makes that carving had not seen the Wanderer, but carves effectively the Wanderer as the Beatus Leibowitz. And other people are like, oh, that doesn't look like you know a saintly enough person. But that could be argued to be like one of the miracles of Leibowitz is that divine inspiration, basically. Mm, yeah, I'm on board. I know you are. You were on board before I said that. Okay, so there's a few different bits and pieces of story and themes that we want to talk about in, in particular. So the first thing I have here is laws of nature. Yeah, I mean, part of that as a point is kind of just a rant for me because... There's a whole thing at the beginning talking about how any creature that's born, like any person that's born alive, no matter how misshapen or deformed, deserves parental assistance to survive. And I'm not disputing that. But what I am disputing in this book is that this is all like framed as something that like is a law of nature and like even the beasts adhere to this. And it's just like, no. Nope, that's just not true. The animal kingdom is full of infanticide all over the place. Human civilizations and human societies also full of infanticide. Not saying that's a good thing, just saying it's a true thing. There's no like inalienable law of nature that anything born alive is owed and like there's some innate drive that all creatures feel to take care of their infants and their babies. Like, be nice if that was true, but it's just not. Yeah. That's fair. But I think that whole thing is just there to sort of once again kind of present this dichotomy of man as part of nature, but also somehow above it. And like we need to like have those standards, but more because we're better and different, even though we're animals. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, there's the distinction between what you're owed and what you can expect from the world, which might be an important distinction there. It's like, is that even what you're owed? Or like, there's a difference between what you're owed and what you deserve or what should be 
I don't know, should is one of those very thorny words. Right, but I mean, if you're taking it from the point of view that this book has of Catholicism, it's it's not the... Law of nature is a very scientific phrase, and if we say it's a law of nature, I mean, it's a law of nature that gerbils eat their young. But if you're talking about what is owed from the point of view of Catholicism, then I mean... It's the whole God gave it life and therefore it is owed. Dot, 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 dot. Parental assistance and survival. Yeah, it's just what annoys me is that it's appealing to the wrong authority there. Like if it's if it would say God made it so that that creature was born alive and thus its life is sacred and thus its parents are obligated to help it survive. That's one thing, but that's not what it's saying. It's saying like it's the law of nature, and that in that, even though I guess you could infer that they're saying because of God's authority of in this matter, like that's why every creature born alive is owed that support, but that's not explicitly spelled out. And the thing that is spelled out is like even the beasts in the law of nature operate in this way, which I'm just like, no. The the beasts in the law of nature, I can agree is optimistic but i think that you're stumbling on onto another point with this which is that language gets muddled over time and things creep in where they shouldn't be i mean if you look at the language of the united states government there's this initial push with the declaration to avoid any reference to a deity or even a creator but then at later dates, various people are adding in references to God and you end up with In God We Trust printed on the money. The book is about this melding and blending of science and faith. You have this sort of contradictory idea with Leibowitz where he's a weapons engineer, but also a saint. Meshing those two together are across 1,200 years and having an order of the church that is all about science and information, even if that doesn't extend to all parts of the church, allows for the possibility of saying a law of nature and having an element of God in your mind when you say a law of nature. I suppose. It still really annoyed me. It's like, the beasts do not operate this way. What are you talking about? Have you met beasts? I just gave a 15-minute explanation on why it was okay, and you're like, I just don't like it. <laughs> it's factually wrong. But storytelling-wise, I think it might be cleverly consistent. Sure. It still is wrong. Oh my god. Okay, let's... <laughs> we'll put a poll up on this Facebook page. Um, what is your response to the phrase? Or to, like, just put the passage there? Just like, what is your response to this? Like, no, the beasts are not that way at all. Or... Yes, it is an alien of a law of nature. Within the context of this story, if you put that as such on the page, then obviously people will talk about it from the context of our world as you do, which is wrong. <laughs> but I think that is something that's worth examining a bit more is sort of how the church interacts with information and in turn how the church interacts with the state. You brought up off mic a particular story about a presentation right yeah the uh part of the story that deals with that kind of relationship most directly is the second part the uh, looks let there be light 
because during that period, the Abbey has been accruing knowledge for hundreds of years, and now civilizations are getting more stable, and there is a collegium. There are actual scholars again. There are people, they're a minority, but there are, you know, members of the political elite who have decided to dedicate themselves to studying the natural world again and value empiricism in particular. So a really promising, like, prodigy of a scholar comes to study the ancient texts and pieces of knowledge that the order has been guarding all these years so that he can integrate the knowledge that they have in his theory of optics because he's been studying the properties of light and things like that. At one point during his time studying at the Abbey, he gives a lecture on his work to the monks at their request because they've all heard that he's this great prodigy and this great mind. But he's really worried the whole time and like keeps setting up his lectures like, oh, I'm, I hope I'm not going to offend you guys. And then he gives this lecture on the properties of light and they're like, why did you think you would offend us? And he's like, oh, well, I talked to Monsignor Apollo, high up church official from a different part of the church about the refrangible properties of light. And he said that it couldn't have been that way before the flood because there wasn't the rainbow at that point in time. And all the monks laugh and they're like, yeah, no, like. A lot of us see a lot of those stories as allegorical and like, you're not going to offend us. It's fine. Like we're men of science. The reason we joined the order is because we wanted to learn things and we wanted to, you know, preserve knowledge. And one of the people, one of the monks in that, in the Abbey has actually applied a lot of the principles that this scholar has been theorizing about to develop the first electric light source in 600 years. So they're like, no, no, it's okay. (laughs) We're fine. Right, it's making the argument that a belief system needs to make room for facts within it. And I think that my whole point about like the meeting of science and religion is maybe best illustrated through the name of the second passage with Let There Be Light, a classical biblical text being applied to the passage in which someone has worked out how to create an electrical light. Sure. I don't know if I would quite phrase it that way, I would think more along the lines of that faith and science are not inherently incompatible. Right, and in a way of melding the two. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. One interesting way that I think that this idea of like finding room for science, and not even just finding room for science, but holding up science to this ideal as part of your faith, like we see with the Order of Leibowitz do, is that it kind of pulls back to this idea that you see in more secular settings of wanting to pursue knowledge for its own sake or wanting to pursue knowledge for the betterment of mankind, but not wanting to let knowledge be misused or be used to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. And that comes up in a few different ways during this book. And like it's kind of heavy-handed a little bit in the second section where the scholar, like I was saying, who was there, Uh, studying has some soldiers with him who end up measuring and like taking a whole bunch of like notes about the abbey because it's a fortification that survived for six centuries including lots of marauders and a lot of assaults and so his guards are taking all these notes about the possible use of the abbey as a fortress right as the scholar's cousin who's the conqueror is planning all his conquering 
the scholar doesn't actually know about it until actually a poet brings it up in front of the scholar. And mm. when he finds out about it, he waits until they're about to leave and takes all of the notes and gives them to the abbot saying, like, if I did it any earlier, they would have had time to drop the plans again. But he refuses to use his like prestige and his renown as being this great and wise scholar to push back against his cousin's like political ambitions and war making, despite the abbot like trying to kind of push him like you have the influence, you need to use it to prevent your cousin from killing and destroying civilizations and co-opting the church for military ends, etc. And the scholar is like, no, if I do that, it'll jeopardize the collegium and like scientific progress, basically, because we won't have the sponsorship of the state. And so that's kind of this clash there of like, well, what are you pursuing this knowledge for? Like, is it worth it to have the support of the state if that then ends up meaning that you're playing into its hands and supporting and worsening its ability to hurt people and destroy things? And that's exactly what we are seeing this world in recovery from. And then you see a similar thing play out at the end where it's World War Three, or I guess World War Four at this point. And there's a similar argument about euthanasia and about like a doctor using his medical knowledge to recommend that someone kill themselves. Of course, that one I have a lot more sticky feelings about, but we can get into that later. Yeah, I think I think the stuff in the second one is particularly interesting because the scholar's not willing to try and bend his cousin's ear and like stand up regarding the larger scale things. But he is willing to presumably jeopardize, perhaps to a lesser degree, his work and his safety by tampering in the affairs of the people measuring the abbey up as a fortress. Like, there's presumably going to be some repercussions when his guards inform people of what he did. And I think it's that he's willing to do it because of the people in front of him and because of the abbey that he has respect for. Whereas the larger scope of things, like he doesn't have that connection to it. I don't know about that because I get the impression that he's at very little risk doing that. And he found it offensive that they're supposed to be there protecting him and they have gone behind his back and betrayed the hospitality of the people they were staying with to do that. And because he's the cousin of the conqueror and like he's got this high position in society. And they're soldiers, um, you know, officers, but soldiers, that it's not threatening to him or his position or his main ambitions to go and be like, no, you guys can't do that. Yeah. Uh, even if okay. it would be somewhat inconvenient, you know, even if it might take one potential resource out of his cousin's array of potential places to uh, set up fortifications. So it's like the risk is so low. But when the risk threatens the thing that he's trying to build his life and his legacy on, like that's a whole thing. And that kind of ties into some of the observations that the abbot has and questions the abbot has for some of the scholars' motivations or feelings about what other people have done. Because there's this implication that 
a big part of the scholar's motivation is to like discover things and make a name for himself and like it might chafe him to only be a rediscoverer of things the last civilization already knew Mm. like kind of along with that there's a weird point where like the scholar is talking about one of his colleagues who has this theory that the present day man of the outlooks is not actually the same mankind that destroyed the world before that it was a servant race made by those people. And so they're inherently inferior and that's why they're in this dark age and all of this stuff isn't their fault. It's the fault of these other people. And the uh, scholar's like, and I found this scrap of memorabilia that you have that seems like it might support it. And the abbot's like, yeah, what, what was that? That is seeming to support this because it sounds like crazy. Talk to me. And uh, it turns out that it's a part of a satirical play. <laughs> and the abbot is like, yeah, no, you are only attracted to this and seizing on this because it's confirmation bias. It's telling you what you want to know, that it's not your fault and it's not our fault that we're in a shitty situation and the grand majority of people now do not value science, do not value knowledge. You want someone else to blame and this is a way of, of doing that. What? Just the uh, thinking about the desperation of clutching on something where you can blame someone else. Just a little depressing in the current circumstances. Yeah. And that idea that this genius is trying to seize onto this idea that maybe he's part of an inferior race of not human beings, because the part of that conversation is, oh, you want to say that we weren't made in the image of God, that we were made by a race that was made in the image of God. So we're like imperfect copy of a copy type of thing. And so can never reach as high or be as great as the previous civilization that we're living in the ruins of also kind of ties into another conversation that recurs this idea of are humans made to fail eventually like are we doomed to seek perfection so endlessly that we bring ruin on ourselves and are just inherently flawed like that this scholar is trying to look for a rationale to say that that's true. I mean, he's sort of looking for a rationale for it and sort of looking for an explanation of why it's okay that you can't attain that perfection. Yeah, like he's looking for excuses right? for he's not... not measuring up to what he thinks people could be because they clearly were at some point. Yeah, it's less about trying to define whether there's this sort of doomed nature so much as trying to find out a reason why it's okay to have this doomed nature Does that makes sense yeah it's kind of this self-defeating attitude that protects you from failure because like if you don't really try you can't really fail like it's a similar kind of mental process you know what i mean so but in this case it's saying oh, I have all these limitations and thus I shouldn't feel bad that I can't surpass them. Those are my inherent limitations. Yeah. And trying to learn the guitar and then instead of practicing, you go and look to see whether you have a genetic defect that gives you stupid fingers. <laughs> and then you're just like, ah, you see, it's not that I don't practice enough. It's, it's these stupid fingers my dad gave me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. And then, of course, that kind of leads into another larger conversation that 
is sort of hinted at throughout, but really like it's like if you didn't get it already, they kind of spell it out for you kind of at the end of this idea of like, is it blasphemous to feel a need to forgive God for putting mm. humans in this position where they're constantly striving, never satisfied, and eventually bring doom on themselves. And when, if he made man, he made them such that they would do that, even if he made them such that they would make that original sin mistake of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Again, not that we're Catholic or necessarily believe in that stuff, but just as far as the organizing ideas of the book. To sort of go back to what I was saying near to the start of the podcast about like the world that this is written in and the experiences that Miller's gone through, it makes a lot of sense to me from this book that he fell out with Catholicism later in life. Because while this is a book that's trying to sort of make peace with, or not even make peace as such, probably a poor Process. choice of words, as much as it's trying to process the situation of war and nuclear situations and mutual destruction it's also asking that question of how could god let this happen it feels like someone is who is personally struggling with their faith trying to work out why these events would happen under the god they've been told about unless that's a cruel god and could lead someone to a position where they're going do i need to forgive god for these cruel actions does that make sense yeah it does and it's interesting because the point at the end when, you know, it's really in your face in that like a woman who has an extra head, presumably due to genetic defects from lingering fallout, tells the abbot that she needs to forgive God. And the abbot is shocked and like kind of appalled, but also then kind of gets it after she talks to him about it a little bit and is like, she feels the need to forgive God for giving her the life she has where she has an extra head and is an outcast in society and also in other ways seems to not have a great life, pretty unsurprisingly. But the priest eventually comes around and even though he initially had viewed even the question of trying to forgive God, like a mortal trying to forgive God, as blasphemous then kind of seems to be on her side with that at the end. With the uh, Rachel and Mrs. Grail character who's lived this way for a long time, being an outcast because of things beyond her control, she's had a lot of time to deal with it. And I think that the abbot has been in a pretty strong position of privilege for a while. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of taken him being in this position of feeling doomed to be able to understand that point of view. Yeah, and he sort of comes to understand it also as a point of view that's relevant to all of humanity. Like that there's a need, or there's at least an argument for a need to forgive God for putting man in this position, making mankind such that he's never satisfied and constantly bringing ruin upon himself in pursuit of perfection he can never attain. Yeah. But at the same time, he's conflicted about even thinking about it in that way, because there's also that idea of like, that's also, again, very prevalent in those same last few pages that God does not give you anything that you cannot endure. And there's the whole thing about him enduring his own painful death after having advised someone else to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, 
the fact that someone can endure what is given to them doesn't mean that they have to be happy about it or that it's fair or just. Sure. And I think that's a big part of it. Like it, the whole idea of this book is that these are really hard, conflicting views, but they're, there are good points on both sides and there's no easy answer. It's just hard. And it's a reflection of a cruel and complicated and confusing world. That's unfortunately still very relevant. Yeah. Like part of the conflict that is sort of spelled out at the end is this idea that like, were humans made to screw up like this over and over forever or not? There's a question of determinism in there. Were people made to commit original sin? Like, was that part of the plan or was it free will? Like, was there ever actually a choice? Is there ever actually a choice that is possible to make that would lead to the end of this destructive cycle? And that's still very much an unanswered question. And I think that's also like on a micro level, part of what that euthanasia argument is about. Also at the end when there is another nuclear blast near the Abbey and there are a lot of refugees and the Abbey is being used as a site for triage and the doctor that talks to the abbot about it says that he has recommended euthanasia to people who are kind of beyond saving. Like they're going to die horribly in a few days, no matter what happens. And so he recommends that they go to a mercy camp and get euthanized. And the abbot tells him he can only set up his triage center in the abbey if he promises to not recommend it. Like you can tell people what their options are, how bad their situation is, but don't recommend that they go and kill themselves because then you're an accomplice to murder and you're an accomplice to ending a life that God has given. And the doctor promises, but then goes back on his promise, tells a woman that she should euthanize herself and her child, her child who's too young to really understand what's going on. And the abbot tells the woman not to do it. And there's a whole argument between him and the doctor where they're trying to kind of explain their positions to each other and the doctor is coming from this position of like there's no hope all there is is pain it's merciful to send people to kind of get it over with without all the suffering and the abbot is coming at it from the side of you don't throw away the life that god gave you and it's murder while there's life there is hope so it's a very complicated thing and like honestly i think the way i'm explaining it doesn't really convey the abbot's point as persuasively as Walter Miller does in this book, probably because it's not the position I necessarily would take, but it is presented persuasively enough that I do get why that is the stance that some people have. Yeah. But it's very clearly a deep conflict that Walter Miller must understand both sides of to write both sides so well reflects back on the earlier part about the misborn in the very first section, the misborn that end up murdering Francis in an earlier conversation when he encounters them. He makes reference to the way that neighboring tribes venerate their ancestors and the misborn immediately are pissed. And they're like, no, we do not venerate our ancestors. Basically fuck our ancestors. We hate the people who gave birth to us and consigned us to this life. And it's kind of this idea of like blaming the one who made you for putting you in a shitty position. Going back to that same thing with, is there something to forgive God for? 
has God committed something horrible against mankind in making us the way we are? Yeah, I think that that euthanasia conversation most likely goes back to what I was saying of like feeling like a lot of the book is that sort of argument with your own faith situation. It's a similar sort of issue of God says this, but I've lived in this world and that doesn't seem practical or fair at some point, which means that either God is wrong or God is cruel. Right. I think an important detail to understanding crux of the whole dilemma about euthanasia in the last part is that the abbot partially holds these views, not just because of the church, but because when he was young, his cat had been crushed and was suffering. And so he tried to put it out of its misery, but in so doing just imposed a lot more pain and trauma on it when it just wanted to go and crawl away somewhere quiet. And so he views what he did, which he feels horrible about, as robbing the cat of its chance at dignity in death and the death that it wanted. He's viewing euthanasia the same way. Like if you're recommending that someone do that or if you're helping someone kill themselves and you are interfering with the natural order of things and the way that they should naturally die, even if that involves some suffering. But the irony of that is what that's led him to do is impose a sentence of greater agony and suffering and indignity on someone who is trying to make a choice they view as more dignified and like the death that they want. Yeah, I think it's definitely a bleak dialogue that Miller is having with either himself or with the world. I kind of find it fascinating that this book was published just 10 years before Left Hand the Darkness, which brings to mind because we did the earlier episode on it, it's another classic sci-fi book, where the message in Left Hand of Darkness, by contrast, seems to be so much that there's a lot of things we struggle with on a social level, but is ultimately optimistic, I think, for that ability to change and like view things differently with the right impetus. Whereas I don't see much optimism in Canticle. It is certainly a deeply conflicted book. Yes, like, that's a very good way of putting it. That's really the most distinguishing thing about it. It's just full of all of these really big questions that don't really have good answers and have really good arguments on both sides, which is part of what makes it very compelling because you can see moments of yourself in various arguments that different characters are making and see reflections of the world and doubts and concerns you've had about it also reflected in it. Yeah. Well, I think that that sort of covers most of the main points that we want to talk about. But I think there's a big question here, and it's sort of the culmination of a lot of the questions that Miller's asking in the book. There's this, is knowledge or the pursuit of knowledge bad? Is mankind doomed? Are they fundamentally bad? And I think the big question is, what is Miller's take on this? What's he trying to convey through the story? I think you could rephrase that as him asking, like, is there any hope for mankind? Like, are we doomed to constantly repeat this cycle of rising and falling forever Icarus trying to reach the sun and always crashing down to earth? And similarly, like, is the pursuit of knowledge just always going to further that decline ultimately? You could also put it as like, does the moral arc of the universe bend toward justice? A lot of people have asked this question. Are we getting any better as a species over time or are we just the same all the time, making the same mistakes forever? And 
As far as what Miller ultimately seems to be coming down on, I think he's trying to end it on a somewhat hopeful note as far as that. And the reason that I say that is because at the end, when the small segment of the Order of Leibowitz gets on a spaceship to establish the church and the memorabilia with remaining humanity, no matter what happens on planet Earth. The last monk to enter the spaceship takes off his sandals and beats the dust off of them outside before coming into the spaceship. And that is a reference to biblical passages, Mark 6:11, And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And it seems like sort of a like, well, fine. If it didn't work out on earth, it didn't work out on earth. We'll try again somewhere else. It might not go well, but we'll try again somewhere else. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think that the biggest argument I can see for him coming down on maybe we're not doomed is the fact that he does write survivors in. He could easily have written this story without there being people out in space already and the entirety of human and the entirety of humanity being wiped out at the end of the book or at least reset in the same way that they were at the start of the book. But certainly that choice to have people leave, as you say, does lean towards that hope rather than despair side of things. Yeah. It definitely also does leave the door open for it to just be another iteration of the cycle where mankind builds up its interstellar civilization and dooms itself the same way it did on Earth. That's certainly a possibility, but there's at least no finality there. And there's, as you say, there's no explicit resetting to exactly where it started. I think that there's also an element of when it comes to the pursuit of knowledge, what your motivation is, is an important distinction. I think it crops up a couple of times, most notably with the story you mentioned already earlier about the guy who finds the part of the satirical play and is like, aha, this is proof of my theory. It's like, no. His friend's theory. His friend's theory. This is, you're not pursuing knowledge honestly you're looking at, for, looking at it for your own betterment. And I think it's a similar sort of thing we see with people in the Abbey jumping to the conclusion that that lone wanderer is Leibowitz. The biggest argument at very first might well be, they kind of want it to be Leibowitz. I kind of want it to be Leibowitz. It makes less matter if I judge, jump to that conclusion, though. Yeah, well, and that is a thing that the Abbot's really worried about in that first section is that no one will take it seriously because it'll be too fantastical and the, and too potentially self-serving. It's like, ah, this has happened in other orders, you know, they're up for canonization and everyone's seeing miracles everywhere and it just starts to look ridiculous. And then uh, they decide that it's not a real, like none of the miracles are real and they won't canonize that person. So that's why he really tries to quash all of those jumping to conclusions and as to be like, okay, we don't have any proof of that. Let's, no, we're not not jumping on that train. We're going to have an independent inquiry by people who have no skin in this game to evaluate, you know, the case for canonization for us. So there's no appearance of any sort of bias. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say that, yeah, like, I think 
Miller is... Let's say I don't think that Miller says that humanity isn't doomed to repeat this cycle and that knowledge isn't bad, but he hopes that it isn't. Say that again? So let's say... He's not saying it isn't, but he hopes it's not. He's not saying that knowledge isn't bad, Mm -hmm. and he's not saying that humanity is doomed. He's saying he hopes it's... Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, the ending does seem to be an open door. But an optimistic one. I'm not even sure. I I mean, I... (sighs) I know I said at the beginning, like, I think maybe he is going in an optimistic direction, but on further reflection, like that same gesture, like it's not necessarily an optimistic one because part of that reference is preach Sodom to Gomorrah. I mean, we know how Gomorrah ends too. So, I mean, maybe it's not as optimistic as I first put at the beginning, but it's at least not admitting failure yet. It's we're not dead yet. There's still a possibility of change. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know, one part that could be construed as hopeful is the Mrs. Grail's Rachel transformation at the end, because the this is that bicephalous woman we were talking about before who was saying like she wanted to forgive God. That's the term they use for it in the book. Okay. I just thought you just knew that off the top of your head for a moment. I mean, I do just by the roots, but anyway, so should I not use that word? No, no, please do. I was just like, what? Because at the end... When the abbot is dying, the other head, the Rachel head on Mrs. Grail's kind of gains awareness. And Mrs. Grail's head, the one that had been active and older, goes into sort of a coma. And the body of this woman seems youthful again. Like she'd previously had like arthritis and stuff. And also even like the skin on the Mrs. Grail's head is like youthening. There seems to be this transformation from this like old and ill woman who has been dealt a really bad hand at life, kind of transforming into this sort of Virgin Mary uh, reincarnation. And that could potentially be read as it, it, given its place at the end of the story, right before the spacefaring monks go off into space as some sort of like a hopeful symbol of the possibility of a rebirth of mankind. Yeah, be more reasonable if she went on the ship, but that might be a bit too heavy handed. Again, I'm not saying it's definitively optimistic, but I think that Walter Miller wanted it to have room to be optimistic. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But I think the bigger question is if hundreds of years from now, you were up for canonization, what would be the best piece of memorabilia? Oh, specifically for me? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird because like the memorabilia they find of Leibowitz is like a shopping list or something with a note about his wife on the end. So it looks like it can really be anything. I just find a really nerdy crochet pattern. Yeah, I mean, I don't write stuff down as much now. Like, mostly what I write down is shopping lists. And when we play Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes, the notes necessary for that. And also, like, earlier today, some Adobe Audition-like steps, you know, for certain editing things that I wanted to try. And I feel like those would be esoteric enough for sure. Yeah. So maybe that, yeah, I don't really, I don't know, I guess if I was like a candidate for sainthood, they'd want stuff about my life. I do have some journals. You have a lot of empty journals you've never written. I've got a lot of mostly empty journals that I've written a small amount in. I journaled a fair amount during my 2007 trip to the UK. So there's stuff about like that. I do have a journal from around the time that my little brother was born. 
when I was nine. And there are entries like from when he was born and like my, my commentary about that and stuff. So that might be a good candidate. Yeah. Although they might draw some weird conclusions like, ah, clearly she she died young in the UK. <laughs> this journal suddenly abruptly stops. Yeah. Maybe birthday cards I've sent to people or given to people. Hmm. That's something I do tend to like write a decent amount in when I give cards to people. So I don't know. It depends on if uh, they retain the capacity to read electronic media at that point. Then that opens up way more possibilities. And I can have all of my emails where I'm very carefully trying to not say it was in the email I already sent you. Uh, planned obsolescence will be the death of that, of course. Yeah, probably. The only like digital media that will survive will be Nokia. Will be what? Nokia phone. Mm, I do have one of those. Maybe my old Nokia phone, actually. There you go. I think it might still be in a box somewhere. It definitely still worked the last time I encountered it. That's 2,000 years from now. We can still play Snake. Yeah. What about you? What would be the best piece of memorabilia for your um, like reliquaries or whatever? I guess a reliquary would have to be a part of your body. So uh, what would yeah, what would be the most uh, compelling relic of you? I, I really should have foreseen that this was going to come back to me when I asked it, shouldn't I? Yeah, obviously. Um, I don't know, you mentioned the handwriting things, and I'm trying to think of things I handwrite still, and like, I don't know. I suppose it could also be something you've printed out that could be definitively attributed to you. I mean, you did publish a book, so. Yeah. But they might not be able to attribute it to you. Yeah, I think think that uh, if they were to find a remaining copy, like, that that's too easy. Hmm. I suspect that, like, knowing my luck, they would probably find some of, like, the poems from when I was 16. <laughs> um, awesome. I mean, got some embarrassing ones like that, too. So. I mean, the thing is, is that, like, some of them are embarrassing and some of them I haven't read in many years and therefore I don't know that they're embarrassing. Mm. Um, but I think I'd be more likely to, like, turn up as a strange apparition and confuse the hell out of someone. I think that that would really be my move more than leaving memorable. No relics, just hauntings. It's going to be the title of my biography. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe both. Maybe maybe shitty teenage poetry and random hauntings. Okay. Okay, I think that, that answers the bigger question. Do you have any fun facts? Or possibly for this book, facts? <laughs> well, we already mentioned that he wrote a sequel. Or that he, he partially wrote a sequel and had someone else finish it. Yeah, we mentioned that in passing. Yeah. I'm not sure if it classes as a sequel. Yeah, it's a more of a midquel. Yep. Because it takes place during the same period of time as Fiat Lux, right? The middle yeah. part? Yeah. Yeah. The only fun fact I have is about the composition of the novel. Walter Miller Jr. primarily wrote short stories and the occasional novelette throughout his career. And this kind of isn't an exception because he wrote the first two sections originally as individual short stories and they were both published independently in magazines and it wasn't until the second one was published that he was like oh these are the same story and he wrote a third part to it and went back and rewrote parts of the other ones to make various changes including adding in more latin changing some character names adding in additional characters so he certainly fleshed them out a lot more for the novel but they did originate as individual short stories that were then stitched together into a whole which i think is fairly apparent on reading it because they are such independent stories it's 
sort of a similar process that Raymond Chandler went through with the big sleep. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see how that resulted in such a uniquely constructed like entire story, because if you were trying to write them all together at the same time as a coherent, unified message, I think it would be hard to avoid intertwining those stories more than they currently are. So that makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense to me just like as far as thinking about him trying to work through these ongoing like traumatic experiences and troubling questions, that that's something that would keep coming up in his writing over time. Okay, I think that's pretty much it for this episode. We will be maintaining our bi-weekly schedule for the foreseeable future. You can follow us on social media, which you can find down in the show notes if you want to make sure that you keep up to date to any changes with that. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel if you would like to go and listen to our podcasts over there. They will soon all be available up there, roughly as easily as they are on any other podcast platform. Thank you for listening to Unramblings. We hope you'll join us next time. But I think the bigger question is, do we have free will? Let's just knock that one out now. What do you think? No? Okay. Oh, that's a real <laughs> softball there. Um, I mean, as depicted in this book? No, 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 no. Just philosopher. Just in general? Oh, yeah. I'm sure we can answer that one in the next few minutes. It's not like sages have been working on that problem for millennia. Do we still have sages? Yeah. Doesn't feel like it. Well, that's a whole different problem.